This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Well, many corporations have uh, started to realize that a part of their annual business plan must be devoted to environmental pursuits. It's interesting that the concept was realistically foreign to many of them not more than about a decade ago. Wharton Sarah Light has uh, done new research that takes a look at what has changed and why, plus maybe where we are headed in the future. The study is called Not the Only Game in Town, The Complementary Roles of Public and Private Environmental Governance. Sarah, an assistant professor in the Department of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at Wharton. Great to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here. Much of this uh, part plays off of what we've seen from President Obama and and the government really trying to push forward with the carbon dioxide emissions, correct? Yeah. So so what's happening right now in the kind of environment, sustainability and business universe is uh, there's almost a kind of convergence between what's happening at the government level and what's happening at the level of private business firms. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Obama administration is very concerned with um, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. The president's climate action plan has these very bold goals to reduce um, uh, the nationwide emissions to 20 six to 28% below 2005 levels by 2025. Mm -hmm. This is all part of the lead up to the Paris climate talks. What's fascinating is that the business world is simultaneously um, acting to reduce its own environmental impacts, sometimes stimulated to do this by the law, sometimes independent of the law. Mm -hmm. And um, my research focuses on the kind of parallel ways in which private firms and government Regulators use tools to uh, reduce environmental impacts. And the interesting thing is, is that these go- these uh, corporations are are willingly making these changes. In a lot of cases, they're not waiting for the government to say, "Hey, you need to do this now, or you're going to be paying a fine." Absolutely. So, um, so businesses are doing these uh, types of kind of sustainability programs for a number of different reasons. In some cases, the concern is. Well, maybe the government is going to regulate this soon. We need to get on board. Mm -hmm. We need to be an early mover. Or it could be we're concerned that the government might want to regulate this. But if we do a good enough job ourselves with self-regulation, maybe that will stave off some kind of government regulation. That's often a concern. In some cases, what I think is really interesting is that firms are recognizing that um, doing sustainability internally can actually be good for the bottom line. Um, Some of them are able to reduce costs, and some of them are developing new business models that actually are driven by sustainability mission. And so that kind of synergy, I think, is extremely interesting and and worth focusing on. And and the interesting thing about that is is not only is is it a bottom line benefit, but in the process of doing that, a lot of these companies, they're obviously also having a PR benefit as well because of maybe the people that they are reaching on a daily basis. And part of it may be just the shift we're seeing with you know, uh, millennials taking over more of the operation of, of the day-to-day business of the family. 
Absolutely. So I think your comment raises a really important point. So, you know, um, at the level of research about what corporate, what is driving corporate firms to act, Mm -hmm. um, the kind of classic traditional view is that corporations have a duty to maximize profits for their shareholders. There are alternative views. And I think one of the most interesting ones is the idea of stakeholder theory, which is that it's not just about maximizing profits for shareholders, but there are other stakeholders of corporate firms like employees, like customers, like, um, you know, members of the public who are communicating their interests through what they're choosing to purchase, through the boycott activity that they might engage in, Mm -hmm. right, through other kinds of public means, and that that is influencing corporate activity. I mean, to give you an example, not from the environmental context, think about um, what happened in the state of Indiana, which tried at one point to pass something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. which was going to have restrictions on um, uh, gay, lesbian, transgender um, people uh, in the state and and sort of what kinds of anti-discrimination measures were in place. And it, it was, you know, Apple and Google and various other corporate firms that began speaking up against that um, practice. That is that kind of sort of, um, social responsibility drive is certainly being driven by millennials. It's being driven by customers. It's being driven by employees who are coming in with different norms and different ethics. And that is really shaping the way that these corporate actors are are proceeding. It is interesting because if you think back, and and maybe my, my timing was right or maybe a little bit off, but if you do go back a decade or so ago, it's a much different philosophy that a lot of these companies had Compared to where we are today. Am am I right? Is it maybe a 10, maybe 15 years? I would say you probably have to go back a little bit further. I mean, I think that this has been – there's definitely a new momentum recently. Um, But you can go back 10 and 15 years and still find firms that are um, taking action on the sustainability front. I mean, you think Mm -hmm. about a company like Patagonia, which was organized as the first B Corp, a benefit corporation, where in its corporate charter it is specifically not solely a profit-maximizing firm, but is required to take into account environmental sustainability principles. Um, In the article that inspired the the Wharton Public Policy Initiative brief on Not the Only Game in Town, so the article that I wrote was called The New Insider Trading, Mm -hmm. Environmental Markets Within the Firm. And in that article, I, I look at two case studies of firms that use internal kind of market leveraging mechanisms and tradable permits to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And British Petroleum put in place its program um, right around the year 2000. So, you know, that's going back 15 years. Now, granted, that program only lasted a few years, but eventually government regulation caught up with BP. And so (laughs) BP's view was, well, we don't need to have a private program if now we're subject to government regulation to reduce our emissions. But there are a lot of companies that are doing it. You mentioned, you know, BP had kind of a kind of an influence on there. What are some of the who are the other companies that are kind of trying to be at the forefront of this? So I think that there are a number of companies now that are really active in this space. Um, You know, a lot of people would point to Walmart as having been a leader, particularly in the area of green supply chain management. Um, It was an early adopter of programs to encourage its um, suppliers to, say, reduce packaging or reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, 
right now, there's a lot of action actually in the lead up to the Paris climate talks because the the White House has created this thing called the American Business Act on Climate Change Pledge. And more than 80 firms have signed on to this pledge. So there's been a lot of publicity around some of the current things that firms are doing. And so just to give you a few examples, um, it sort of depends on what industry the firm is in, right? So a big services firm like Walmart, which has just hundreds of thousands of suppliers, is very active in green supply chain management. Berkshire Hathaway um, has pledged to retire some of its coal-fired electricity generation capacity, right? Not many other firms can say, well, we own a coal-fired power plant and yeah. we're going to you know, shut that down. So that's something that's really unique to Berkshire Hathaway. Um, Google Earth. Um, Google uh, has 40 years of satellite imagery hmm. that it is making available online for scientists to be able to do research on um, climate change, hmm. right, and and um, sort of geographical changes to the surface of the earth. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, some banks have pledged to increase their investments in renewable energy. Um, Goldman Sachs is uh, working on something called catastrophe bonds, which hmm. are kind of an alternative form of almost quasi-insurance hmm. for uh, countries that are uh, potentially subject to some kind of natural disaster. And then um, the area that I've mostly been focusing on has been what firms are themselves doing to reduce their own carbon footprints. Sure. So I mentioned that BP had this internal emissions trading system in the early aughts. Is that what you call yeah. the 2000s? Early 2000s? The yeah. early 2000s. Um, so Microsoft has now for the past several years put in place an internal car, basically like a private carbon tax mm-hmm. within the firm itself. Hmm. This is absolutely fascinating to me. So what they have done is they decided we are going to become carbon neutral in certain areas of our business, including their data centers and employee business travel. Sure. And then they figured out, well, what do we need to do to become carbon neutral? Partly that involves reducing our actual emissions. And partly that involves buying offsets for what they can't themselves reduce. And then they figured out, well, how much is it going to cost to do all of those things? And based upon what the total cost would be, they then set a price, which they Hmm. charge to individual business units for their emissions. And so if you speak to, um, you know, Rob Bernard, a Wharton alum who is the chief environmental strategist at Microsoft, and you invite him to fly somewhere to give a talk, he'll have to check his carbon budget to see whether (laughs) he's able to make the flight or whether maybe he has to use some kind of teleconferencing software. It is absolutely fascinating. That's that. I mean, that changes the the, the entire strategy of day-to-day operations of a company. Just just on a basic level, if somebody says, No, no, I can't make it because my 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 I've used up my carbon <laughs> I've used my carbon tax. Absolutely. And and so, you know, Microsoft is is doing this right now. The Disney Corporation also uses a private carbon fee. Hmm. Um and actually Yale University just announced that it is adopting a pilot program um which will impose a carbon tax on its departments. Um, And obviously it has to impose the tax on those departments or sort of organizational units within the university that have independent budgeting authority. So you can't tax, you know, the Germanic languages department any more than you could tax (laughs) the eighth floor of Microsoft headquarters, right? It has to be an organizational unit with independent budget authority. Um, But this is 
an absolutely fascinating development, and I think it's not getting a lot of attention in legal scholarship. That's what I. That's sort of one of my missions is to say, look, private actors are using the same tools as public government actors, and hmm. there should be more dialogue between them. Because I think that there's a lot of learning that can take place. Yeah, that that being able to pass that information along. Because while one company, you know, how it, we, the operation would set up in one company compared to another might be a little bit different. There are probably a lot of elements within the operations that are already being put in place that other companies can use and maybe tweak along the way to to really kind of fit the bill. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, you know, there's been, um, for example, in the kind of public governance debates about. What's the best instrument to address greenhouse gas emissions? Mm -hmm. I think economists would generally agree that carbon taxes are the first best solution. They're the most efficient um, as long as you're able to get the price right. There are obviously a lot of political feasibility problems, particularly in the United States, with putting in place some kind of carbon tax. Um, But – It is fascinating to me that firms are doing this, private firms um, who would themselves potentially be subject to a carbon tax are actually choosing to do this to themselves. And um, in the the months leading up to the Paris climate talks, a number of um, publicly traded major firms, both energy firms and and other private corporations, have – Uh, written to the director of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change saying, we think that in order to address global greenhouse gas emissions, market mechanisms like carbon taxes or emissions trading systems mm-hmm. are the best and most efficient, but this needs to be a global effort. Yeah. Um, so so again, I think that there's a lot of development in this but area. But there there, it doesn't seem like there's much doubt that, you know, obviously this is a very good thing that, that a lot of these corporations are doing. But as you alluded to before, if they can stay ahead of the game and they can stay ahead of the regulation and put this into place themselves, they basically you know, can say to the government, wherever they might be, say, look, this is what we're doing. You know, we are we're a leader. We're not somebody to be, you know, to be seen as a as an agitator in this case. Absolutely. Although, to be totally fair, I think that that argument only goes so far. Okay. Right. And um, so I am by no means advocating pure private environmental governance. I think that there needs to be complementarity between private action and public regulation. Yeah. As we all know from being consumers of the news over the last month and a half, um, the Volkswagen emission scandal is a really clear example of a case in which it was only the threat by the Environmental Protection Agency um, against Volkswagen that it was not going to certify the cars for sale in the United States that got an admission from VW that the company had actually been cheating on its emissions test. Yeah, and that's obviously, you know, that, that is unfortunately more of of the exception rather than the rules seemingly. But the VW case actually was something that I want to bring up because you're talking about there still are some companies out there that maybe are not willing to follow that line. They probably will be coming in line because seemingly this is going to be a worldwide push, you know, in the next in the next decade or two, or else we have, as everybody seemingly now agrees, we have some serious consequences that are out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, if you look at the 80 plus companies that signed the president's um, climate change pledge, again, that was not a government regulation, although I would say it was inspired by the White House that these firms have taken this pledge. Um, One thing that's notable is the business firms that are not on the list. So, you know, oil and coal companies that have built their businesses on fossil fuels are not part of that 
pledge, although, again, I do point out the example of British Petroleum. Um, There are other firms that are certainly taking some actions, but that is a heavily regulated industry. And obviously, the the, um, uh, EPA's new clean power plan is targeting the coal-fired power plant electricity generation industry. So there may be less need in that circumstance for private action when there's such a focus in public action. But I was going to say, there still is obviously a concern in terms of, and, and you, electricity obviously is, is one of the big areas, and transportation is, is another big area in terms of the change that needs to happen over the next 30, 40 years to kind of eliminate some of the some of the problems with emissions that we know are there, and obviously, in the case of VW, are still there, whether or not the company wants to be honest about them or not. Absolutely. No, this is this is completely right. So if you look at the um, sector by sector or um, sort of economy wide major sources of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, number one is the electricity generation sector. Number two is transportation. Um, And so as part of the president's uh, climate action plan, EPA has focused under the Clean Air Act and the Energy Policy and Conservation Act on setting higher fuel economy and lower emissions standards for cars and trucks um, and is actually going after the sort of heavy trucks uh, as well, not just passenger cars and SUVs. The, 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 the push that everybody wants to have a pickup truck once again. Yeah, exactly. Um, and obviously, the clean power plan is trying to go after the electricity generation sector. A number of scholars in my field in the environmental <clears throat> law and policy field have said we also need to think about individuals, right? Hmm. Individuals as a source of greenhouse gas emissions. And again, I think hmm. part of this is about how you frame the problem, right? Okay. So you could look at a chart and say electricity generation and transportation, those sectors are responsible for greenhouse gas emissions, you know, the majority of greenhouse sure. gas emissions. But who's demanding the electricity and who is driving the cars, right? It's all of us. And so you could redraw the same chart as uh, one of my colleagues, Michael Vandenberg at Vanderbilt Law School has pointed out. You could redraw that chart and attribute many of those emissions to individuals. And obviously in the United States, we're not a big fan of telling individuals what to do (laughs) um, and environmental law certainly. Nor nor are the people willing to accept you being told that either. Right, exactly. I mean, we're not going to be walking around wearing individual emissions counters anytime soon. But there's a role for behavioral change, and there's also a role for structural change, like better investment in public transportation and things like that. That's interesting because, I mean, obviously, when you're talking about the, you know, the world that we live in here in the United States right now, you know, how many millions of people own a car? Well, realistically, that's not going to change anytime soon. Uh, you know, a lot of people that, you know, are in that millennial generation living in cities, okay, they may not be buying cars, but still we're talking about a year this year where we're going to see 17.7 million vehicles sold. So it's not the the necessary of the vehicles, it's what you do around the vehicles that will really make the change for good. Absolutely. So again, all of the decisions that we make as consumers of electricity, as consumers of cars and fossil fuels as individuals are very much shaped by the environment and structures that we live in. Um, So, you know, one has to think whether you're a government regulator or a private firm trying to come up with some new business model that where the business model itself is trying to drive sustainability, right? There are a lot of issues that are potentially something 
you know, potentially ways to address some of these bigger structural problems. So then, then going forward then with the number of co- companies that we have here in the United States that fall into that category of multinational, how much pressure or how much power could they potentially bring on other countries by saying, you know, okay, Apple, Google, they're doing obviously lots of production, you know, in other other parts of the world. How much pressure can they put on other governments to say, listen, you need to address this, or the option is we can move our operation someplace else? Absolutely. I think your question is really hitting the nail on the head. Um, green supply chain management has major global potential to have really big impact. So if you think about a company like Walmart or Apple, those companies, many of their suppliers are located abroad. Many of them are located in China. And so the statement by Walmart that all of its suppliers need to disclose their greenhouse gas emissions, that is a way for a private actor to influence governance abroad, right? So the United States government couldn't tell a supplier in China that it needs to disclose its greenhouse gas emissions. But the threat of losing a contract with Walmart could be a real motivator in that regard. So the potential, you know, we can only manage what we measure, right? So even information disclosure by suppliers is very important. The, The statement that suppliers, again, Walmart suppliers need to reduce their packaging, that has a tremendous environmental impact as well abroad. Um, so I think the the sort of private environmental governance form of supply chain management is a really important tool yeah. to think about how to reach abroad into other countries. What, what do you see as as the the potential timetable to really make the shift? I mean, obviously, with the with the the conference coming up in a couple of weeks in, in Paris, uh, that's going to draw a lot of attention on this topic. Uh, going forward. We're still, though, we're talking about something that even though it is in the process of of happening, we're still in kind of the infancy stage of it. And we're still a long way from from being where we need to be to be able to change the world. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the models, they kind of suggest that we're even a little bit late yeah. right now. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And 2050 so, is still kind of that target year, right? Yes. But I think um an economist would would tell you that, um, you know, by spending less, if we don't spend the money now, we're going to have to spend a lot more money sure. in the future. Yeah. And it's not just about money, right? Yeah. That money represents a whole host of costs that are actually quite intangible costs in terms of public health and national security right. and other issues that are going to be compromised um, if we let the climate change um, problem kind of run away. So. The Great. time for action is now. Great to have you here. Thanks very much, Sarah. Thank you so much. Always good to see you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.